Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Mentors for Military Podcast. We want to go into uh, you guys' background, and I don't know who wants to go first, Sherry, either you or, or Chelsea, but really kind of l- give a little bit of your military background and, and uh, how you came about with Hunter 7 Foundation, because I want to dive into exactly what you guys are getting into, and who wants to go first? Sherry, you go first. I knew you were going to do that. Uh, my background, I started in the Army first and came in to get educated as a nurse. The Army um, cre- made that possible, went in as a LPN, active duty program, came out, uh, went to reservist, finished my bachelor's, and of course the military helped pay for that, and then they helped pay for my master's. That brought me to teaching the military is what brought me to education. I always taught in some capacity. Um, I was teaching a lot as an LPN, and then I transferred to the Air Force about 15 years into my career for flight nursing. So did that for the last 13 years as a flight nurse. Uh, transitioning out of the military now as a lieutenant colonel, and transitioning into education so it's been three years i've been teaching at rhode island college which is what brings me to chelsea my career definitely has not been as cool or as accomplished as nikki's or uh, sherry's so i enlisted as an e1 um right out of high school i didn't i was kind of a bad kid i didn't really know what i was doing with my life and i was like i'll just join the military seems like a solid idea this is a great story so far keep going (laughs) I mean, there was a lot of fun in between, I won't lie to you, um, a lot of things that should, shouldn't have happened that happened, but you know, so, but I, uh, I enlisted and um, I was assigned to an aviation platoon. Um, halfway through my career, uh, I was medical, um, a medic, halfway through my career, I was severely injured, um, I hurt my back, and um, I think everybody you meet in the military has a back injury, uh, it's either diagnosed or undiagnosed. Or neck, mine, yeah. 
or neck yeah. or neck or knees. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of knees. Um, <laughs> but so I went to the VA and they said to me, your career's over. And I was pending a commission um, into the military as an officer. And they said to me, your career's over. You're too messed up to do anything. And I was like, okay, uh, I don't really know what I'm going to do now. And I was extremely upset. And the guy looked at me and I'll never forget this. And he said, there's always other ways you can serve. And I said, okay, you know, sure, whatever. <laughs> so I stayed in the military for another four or five years after that. Um, the military is extremely slow when it comes to medical discharges and things like that. So I stayed in the military and I was like, well, what am I going to do now? I really like medical. I guess I'll go to school. You know, they're going to pay for it. I might as well go. So I went to school for nursing. <laughs> um, it just kind of hit me. I was like, yeah, no, I really like this. I'm going to continue doing this. So it was definitely a transition. Uh, I was older when I went to school. And a lot of these younger kids, they had no idea what was going on. And, you know, I was always yelling at them and giving them, giving them a hard time. And, and one day I was walking down the hall and I see this short woman, 5'2", wearing this onesie. Uh, in the Army, they call it a pickle suit like this onesie pickle suit with, with the rank of like major on it. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, like being enlisted, I was like, Oh my God, who's this? And so I kind of jumped back and I was like, what do I do? You know, like, what do I do? So our maternity professor, I, I don't like babies aren't my thing. (laughs) So she was actually my maternity instructor. Um, and I, I, we got along immediately, you know, she talked about, we talked about deployments together and, and all those crazy things. And I said, Hey, listen, have you ever heard about, you know, burn pits? And she was like, Oh yeah. You know, and, and it just escalated from there. And it's like every, every week we're hanging out every day we're doing something, you know, since that day, we've just been back and forth, um, reflecting off of each other ways to improve ways to get better, utilize nursing, um, as a whole in the sense of veteran healthcare, um, not in the VA, not in the military, but after the transition, when you get out of the military, um, you know, because we're not really doing a great job looking after our veterans. I see it every day in the hospital. When you go into hunter7.com, there is actually a piece in which you guys start talking about, you know, burn pits and the effects and everything. And it says since 2003, approximately 2 million United States service members have deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Increased rates of respiratory illnesses have been discovered in otherwise healthy soldiers who've been to Iraq. And your mission is to explore unknown underlying chronic and often terminal systemic conditions veterans may suffer from returning from combat. And I I thought it was very interesting some of the stats that you guys gave here in terms of uh, by May 2003, American forces had constructed and operated 250 burn pits to be used for waste disposal on Joint Base Balad. Burning operations ran 24 hours, seven days a week to keep up with accumulating trash. It was estimated that every soldier within a combat zone creates approximately 10 pounds of trash per day, estimating 140 tons of trash per day burned on average, which peaked in 2017 at Joint Base Balad with 240 tons of trash burned in one day. Right. That's unbelievable. Right. So... A little backstory about um, Hunter 7, why it is called what it is called. Um, I met my fiance five years ago, five ish years ago. Um, and about four years ago, we were sitting in this truck, and it's those conversations that you don't really, you know, think about that 
you know, that, that really stick to you. So we were sitting in his truck and he says to me, a lot of my friends have died from Iraq. And I said, yeah, I mean, that's war, not to sound insensitive, but that's war. You know, it happens. And he said, no, they died when they got home. And I was like, what are you talking about? And being, having a medical background, having a medical, um, MOS, I was like, you know, I was dumbfounded. I didn't realize what he was talking about. And so I Googled his Sergeant Major's name and um, it came up with colioangiocarcinoma. I was like, what is this? I know it's a carcinoma and I know it's colio, so it, sure it has something to do with the gallbladder. And um, he said, yeah, he died. You know, they didn't know what was wrong with him for 18 months. He suffered for 18 months. They thought it was the flu. Nobody really knew what was going on. So I said, okay, you know, this doesn't make sense. And then he said to me, his roommate actually died the day they got back from Iraq um, from acute respiratory failure. So, and he was only 24 years old. And then a few years ago, another friend died from acute myelogenous leukemia and he was only 32. So I sat there and I was like, okay, you know, curiosity got the best of me. And I kind of, it, I kind of obsessed over the thought. I was like, so why are these people dying? What's, what's killing them? You know, why is this happening? So at the time, his name was Sergeant Major Robert Bowman. Um, he was assigned to the 25th Infantry Division. He served with Deuce 4 in Missoula from 2004 to 2005. And then he redeployed, which my fiancé was on for 15 months, to uh, Fob Normandy, Stryker, Balad, um, with 2nd Cav out of Germany. So they were there from 07 to 08. So his call sign during the first deployment to Iraq was Hunter 7. So I said to my fiance one day, I was like, hey, listen, I'm going to do an honors project because that's the only way I can do research. I'm not an overachiever by any means, <laughs> but that's the only way I could do research. So I said, hey, listen, I'm going to do this and we're going to title it Hunter 7. Like it's, it's for him. Uh, I reached out to his wife, Colleen. And she actually works for TAPS in D.C. as the senior toxic exposure advisor um, for those who suffer and die. So I got in contact with her and she said, yeah, let's do this. And then we started the research from there. Um, so we started, I went to Sherry and I said, Sherry, I want to do this project with you. Um, so she was like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Take on more work. Um, so we started that. And what we did is we took a whole summer and we just did an entire literature review. So we, we found probably 100 uh, academic journals, articles, and we pretty much highlighted all the key facts and what was important, what wasn't important. Um, and we looked for the, the, the gaps in data. So where was the, the gaps? Why were they missing? You know, and all that stuff. So after we did that, we went to the burn pit registry. We looked at the flaws in that and we said, okay, what are we missing? How come these people are continuously dying? So once we did that, we created the survey. <laughs> we surveyed Iraq war veterans only because, you know, you guys know just as well as I do, Iraq, Afghanistan are two different uh, areas of operation. They're two different, you know, elements, two different environments, you name it. Everything's different. There is maybe one or two similarities between the two countries. So we focus strictly on Iraq, um, Operation Iraqi Freedom from 2003 to 2011. Um, and the survey that we did approved by the IRB, um, evidence-based, we flooded it out on social media and, um, various outlets. A few congressmen helped us <laughs> spread the word and, um, the response we got was unbelievable. So 
that was a few years ago. And this is something that Nikki, you know, when you were on the podcast in episode 187, one of the things that you started talking about is your time as a nurse in California in which um, you started seeing a lot of people suffering from cancer and at very young age and you were wondering the same thing what is going on why is it that so many are in the the unit here yeah I was really shocked to discover that you know when I when I got assigned to the cancer floor I thought it would be the older generation and people kind of at the end of their life and I was shocked to see that most of my patients were in their 20s and there were lots of leukemias all different kinds of leukemias and it really it got me wondering um and that's why I'm so thankful to have found you guys because it's it's always been a question in the back of my mind. Like, you know, it's got to be something that we're being exposed to. And when I was in Afghanistan, we had uh, several of our providers come back and they had cancer. A couple of them have died. And it was just, you know, again, it was it was in the back of my mind. This isn't normal. I mean, these people are very young. You know, one was colon cancer and he was in his, I think, late 30s, early 40s. Um it just was strange to me. So, but I didn't really know where to start. And I think a lot of people feel that way. It's such a vast, you know, subject that you don't really know how to get involved with anything like that. So it was, it was really great to, to find you guys. And that's why I'm a huge, huge supporter. Cancer, of course, is one of these subjects that's very hard because when you start looking at it, what were the reasons? Is it genetic? Is it uh, dealt with from an environment? Is it a combination of both? How were you predisposed? All of those types of things. And it gets to where there are so many types of cancer. So how do you then narrow it down and go, okay, we believe it was this. And I believe, as I understand it for Hunter 7, you can pretty much narrow it down to being an environmental impact that really caused a lot of these defects that otherwise they may not have been predisposed, I'm assuming, uh, from a genetic standpoint. Right. I mean, it's, you know, there's always genetics always comes into play, but there's a lot of other things that come into play. Like, you know, when you think about that average soldier produces 10 pounds of trash per day, you know, when I enlisted, we had canteens, we had camelbacks, we had reusable forks and spoons. We don't anymore. We send over pallets of water, you know, plastics. And I mean, you know, you accumulate all this trash and what are you going to do? You're going to, you're going to burn it to get rid of it. I mean, there's no place you can really put it. And I mean, from a medical standpoint, and I'm sure Nikki can, can vouch for this, you know, when you have a uniform that's completely covered in blood, I mean, for OPSEC reasons, you can't just throw it out. You know, it has to be destroyed. Um, you can't just throw it in your local trash or you can't just hand it off to, to one of the locals and have them get rid of it for you. Um, right. So a lot of these things are burned. Body parts, too. That was a big one. We um, Interesting that you say that. We say that and it's like, you know, it's like, okay, it happened. You know, we're, we're okay with, not okay with it, but we're we understand. But when we went to the college's uh, institutional review board for ethics and <laughs> we had body parts on the survey and they had a conniption and they said, oh, my God, you animal, you can't ask this. And I said, why? You know, like this is this is real. This is what happens. You know, when you have it's 130 degrees out and you have a dead body that's bloated laying on the side of the road near your fob outpost gate. Uh, Jersey barriers, you know, what are you going to do? You can't just leave it there for health reasons. You got to get rid of it. Um, and they were, they, their jaws dropped. They couldn't believe it. 
Yeah. We actually had to take that question out of the survey because they thought it would trigger people. And I said, well, this is war. So. Yeah. Not to mention what you burned all of that with. So whether it was some kind of jet fuel, diesel, whatever the case may be, in order to ignite it and keep it going and make it hot enough that we would burn the materials that you had there. if they, Because mm-hmm. some of it may not have been um, where it would burn easily either. So now right. you add to that. So you have all of these chemicals of whatever's in the air, of whatever you're burning, along with the substance that you, that, that you started the fire with or kept it going. Right. Yeah, we used... Um jp4 and jp8 from aviation standpoint yeah -hmm. Yeah, we just we just threw everything uh in there and just lit on fire but yeah no we um and not to mention what's in the soil already that's a good point yeah i mean you know people forget that we've already invaded iraq once (laughs) um it was a war that i was i was born into so you know when we were in iraq the first time you know, there was a whole to do about whether there was chemical weapons or not, whether there was, you know, Saddam Hussein had, you know, that's up for debate. But regardless, you know, there was stuff that shouldn't have been there that was buried in the sand. I mean, it's like a big cat box. It's like a litter box. Iraq's a litter box. You dig with a backhoe, you dump all the stuff in there and you fill it up and then it's gone. You know, the sand absorbs a lot of it. But in 2003, when George Bush was like, hey, listen, either you get out of here, we're going to start bombing your country we started bombing their country we went to their bases and, um, you know, the best way we can dispose of trash is to dig up that ground and then throw everything in there. And, um, the survey that we did, we actually asked the, uh, the base locations of where our respondents served, uh, primarily. And the top six bases are the same top bases that Saddam Hussein used during his, um, regime to, manufacture chemical weapons up in ba- uh, down in Basra, up in Mosul, um, in Baghdad, in uh, Fob Q West. So all these places are in the same AO. You know, we have the Iraqis sitting there creating sarin and tabin and mustard gas. And then we have, you know, the Americans going in there like, oh, hey, it is what it is. Let's do it. You know, and it's um, it's been really devastating. And the thing about that is you don't know you're being exposed. It's not really your primary concern. Um, you're not sitting there like, okay, maybe I shouldn't breathe this air. You're sitting there like, okay, I hope I don't get mortared today. Um, right. You know, like what's the priority <laughs> and you get so bored and like, I'm sure, you know, Sherry, me and Sherry have talked about this so much. The fun runs, they're never fun. Running isn't fun. <laughs> and when you have to run in 135 degree weather and it's like, okay, let's do this motivational 5k. <laughs> Let's breathe this in deeper. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a terrible idea, but it's not just the burn pits either. It's the particulate matter. The you know people don't realize that the particulate matter size is less than two point five micrograms. So when you break down something that sand that small from all the shamal winds and the sandstorms, and you're running outside, you're it's hot out. Your uh, work of breathing increases. So instead of breathing, you know, right now eight to ten liters per minute, you're increasing up to you know, 50 to try to push off the heat, to try to push off, you know, so you're breathing in faster, deeper, more rapid. When you're running outside, you're breathing in these small particulate matter, uh, samples of sand. And the thing about PM 2.5, it's smaller than your hair. It's smaller than, um, the sand that we have here. So when you breathe that in, you know, it goes down past your, your, um, 
past your trachea into your into your uh, bronchioles and through your you know through your lungs. Whereas the stand that we have here, we can stop it right here and cough it back up. You know, you can feel it. You can feel yourself cough up sand over here, but over there you can't. So, I mean, it's not just burn pits, it's toxic exposures as a whole. And the same thing goes with the D and permethrin. Um, <laughs> I don't know how the, the Navy or the, um, the Air Force does it, but in the Army, we were told to get our uniforms and take them and dip them into a massive barrel of some liquid. And, I mean, I think I was an E4 at the time, so I was like, okay, you know, they're telling me to do this, I'm going to do it dip it in, you hang it up, and then that's it. Um, but you don't realize the amount of chemicals that you're putting into your body because in the same sense, it's 130 degrees out, you just put on that uniform that you just covered in, in permethrin and deep liquid. So now, you know, your increase of work of breathing, even if you're just sitting there working on a, a vehicle or waiting to um, taxi off the, the chalk line, you know. So you're sitting there, your pores open up to sweat to cool down your body, and, you know, sweat can't, fight off permethrin. Permethrin isn't hydrophobic, it's hydrophilic. So, you know, that whole, that whole um, exchange, the permethrin goes right into your skin. And you see it a lot with people that have chloracne or certain skin conditions. You can see it on their foreheads, on the back of their necks, and the body parts, certain creases of their bodies. So it's, um, there's a lot more to just burn pits, whereas toxic exposures as a whole, it's just, it's just bad news. Mike, what was uh, some of the experiences that you saw? Well, I, I, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit, but I, I, this kind of leads me to question. First of all, I think this research is, is fascinating, having lived all over the world where there are burn pits. And I, I, it kind of drives me to a question in, in the background, Chelsea, for my question mm -hmm. is, um, my career took me all over the world. I live, I've lived uh, all over Eastern Africa, all over Eastern Europe, uh, and, and quite a bit in the Middle East. And in every one of these communities, they got rid of their trash and and probably body parts and blood product and everything else. I didn't know it at the time that they got rid of it by burning. And um, so I, I, I remember vividly in the gosh, late nineties when we were in Bosnia um, and I was, I was in the British sector up North. So I wasn't with the rest of the Americans. And um, I lived just North of a town called Banja Luka and, and Banja Luka took all the regional trash into this large landfill and it never stopped burning. So they, they kept, they kept, adding trash, adding some type of, you know, uh, fuel to it. And they just kept burning. It's a pretty big city. Um, and as the wind would shift, we would get clouded up in the North in this, you know, this, this smoke and residue of, um, of, of burning whatever, whatever they were putting in it. Um, and, and I know you've listed a lot of other things like plastics, some other things. To, and I, I would, I would wonder too, kind of a side note, if the anti-malarial had anything to do with it, well, that we were all forced to take, um, but but I, I think you know in Africa every village has a has a burn pit on a corner, you know as you're driving through a village and everybody takes their trash there and somebody is responsible for getting rid of that trash every day, I, and I, I just wondered if if you ran into in your research like a, a case study or something to compare if if I realize that their life expectancies in these places aren't as high as they are in the United States, but but is there are there cases of similar instances young people coming up with some type of toxic cancer because of exposure to, to a similar circumstance. Yeah. Direct correlation. I, I got it. Yeah. From local people uh, versus just Americans popping yeah. in. Yeah. Or other forces. So, so we actually did because I was in a, a public health class and they were like, Oh, vital statistics. And I was like, I don't know what that is. And she's like, Oh, you know, it, it tells you the health of a country and how, 
you know, their top causes of death. And I was like, oh, I'll look up Iraq. So I looked up Iraq and um, I actually pulled the stats from there. And I was reading a study in 1990, Iraq cancer rates were four per every 1,000 in 1990. That's, that's not bad, not great, not bad. In 2005, so two years into Operation Iraqi Freedom, Iraqi cancer rates were 160 per every 1,000. So it, it, it increased extremely. Um, we also looked into a few studies done at the University of Michigan, and it said there was a, a, a trend that showed you have a seven times likely chance compared to Hiroshima and Nagasaki to have a heart defect were being you were having a child in Basra, Iraq, and that yeah, so one to two percent likelihood of having a heart defect in Nagasaki and Hiroshima compared to fifteen percent in uh, Baghdad and Basra. Wow. So I mean, that's we dropped two atomic bombs in Japan too. That's insane. Um, and so to think about that, and this this woman is amazing. Her research is is top of the line. Um, she's out of the University of Michigan, and so we looked into that, and the life expectancy in Iraq is uh, 70 years, which isn't bad, but in 2007, the number one cause of death was terror and uh, conflict. Number two cause of death, premature death, was uh, neonatal disorders, number three, congenital disorders, uh, number four, um, ischemic heart disease, number five, lower respiratory infections. So we compared 2007 when we were at Iraq, um, when, you know, Balad was burning the most trash, when Balad was, you know, when we had the highest activity during the surge in 2007. Number five, cause of death, premature, was lower respiratory infection in Iraqis. We compared it to 10 years later in 2007. It wasn't even on the list. There was a 37% decrease in lower respiratory infection-related deaths from 2007 to 2017. So you can see as the conflict switch, you know, um, Obama started to withdraw troops when he became president. You can see the change in Iraq and Afghanistan. Iraq's way up here in troops and Afghanistan's way down here. As soon as he came into office, you can see it, it changed drastically. But in the same sense, you can also see the cause of death premature in Iraq populations change drastically as well. So... 37% decrease in 10 years in lower respiratory infection-related deaths. So what's in the air that they're breathing that's killing them? The same stuff that's in the air that's killing our soldiers. Um, so th th there's a difference there, though. There's, there's a, <laughs> what, what you're citing is a difference. It's the introduction of something we brought into the conflict. So the, the little villages that I was in, in you know Ethiopia and Somalia and Kenya, <laughs> and they're burning trash, maybe they don't have the same, I don't know, things that, that right. were burned, all the, the, the concentrated plastics, all the water bottles, you know, all, all the stuff that we bring in, uh, and 10 pounds a day seems like a lot of trash anyway, but for anyone, but, but I'm probably well, you know, right with everybody else. But I, I just, I just wonder if that's, if that's something we introduce. So you're, you're you can cite that from Iraq mm -hmm. that, that in a location, Balaj huge, you know, LSA there. So a lot of trash. Right. God, I thought, I thought this the whole time I was in Djibouti. There's this massive incinerator. Any of you have been to Djibouti, to Camp Le Manier? No. You know, this massive, massive incinerator, right? And I would run by it every morning. Like I said, 130 degrees. I love running in heat. Run by it every morning as there are just clouds of this crud coming out of it. And um, and when I filled out my burn pit registry, I remember 
I was telling Robert this yesterday or the day before. I said, the only thing I know about burn pits is the VA sent me this saying, hey, fill this burn pit registry out. And ever since then, I just get like a weekly email from the VA. I, I put that in there. I mean, that was one of the locations that they were, were concerned about. Because, I mean, it's not – it wasn't a, a pit in the ground. This was something that was designed to take all of our trash. And it was 5,000 people on a very, very small installation. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if it's the same thing there or, or similar. I think we brought the problem there, and I say that not. I'm pro. I'm pro military, pro America. I'm pro government. You know, not pro government. You know what I mean. Um, but I don't. Our whole thing isn't to push the the blame on, on the VA, on the DoD. You know, we're not trying to get compensation and pension. Um, you know, we're nurses. What your exposure happened. We can't prevent your exposure from not happening, but we can hopefully screen and, and make sure it doesn't get worse. Um, so with that being said, you know, off the record, I do think we brought the problem there. Um, I'm sure the first Gulf War and, and the Iraqi government had a lot to do with it as well. But I think we did bring a lot of the problems there. Um, you think about a striker vehicle. Strikers are, are armored with depleted uranium to prevent the blast from from being um, lethal in a sense. So when you're driving in a striker or an MRAP and you're hitting, you know, these, these IEDs and these V beds are, are crossing your paths and you're hitting them, you know, all that depleted uranium inside to protect you is being pushed and, and compressed inside and you're breathing that stuff in. So I think a lot of the stuff we brought there, it's, it's not organic material. It's not organic, you know, it's, it's man-made. Um, and we actually pulled the numbers in Bala just to think about how much waste they produced in one day. Um, we pulled the numbers and it was roughly 360,000 pounds um, a day being burned at Bala at the, at the, at the top, um, at the top they got, level. They got great chow halls in Bala. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if you think about that much, that much waste in terms of pounds, they burned approximately five and a half pounds of five and a half Abrams tanks. Think about that. Five and a half Abrams tanks in weight. And that's every how much day. they burned every day. And that's yeah. like 15 school buses and 103 Toyota Camrys. Because <laughs> yeah, all that good food comes packaged in plastics, right? Shipped across mm -hmm. the, the, the ocean in, in refrigerator containers. Same thing in Djibouti. Same thing. We had great big, great big uh, stuff coming. Hey, you mentioned a Gulf War, first Gulf War, mm -hmm. which... I was not born into. I was actually in, in on, that, on that freaking old. Um, I never had any of these problems. I, I've got a caveat that I've got nothing at stake, no interest in it other than, you know, uh, people I know have been affected to this. But Gulf War syndrome comes up and it makes me think of that. You talk about the VA has never really acknowledged that and said there was anything, you know, that happened. But I know people who served with me over in, in the Gulf War in 1990, 1991 that mm -hmm. have like massive skin problems that they like eczema, but, what, but they can't, they can't get or acne. Yeah. They can't get rid of. And they, they try all these different conventional treatment methods and they never could get rid of it. Um, and you know, the VA is like, we don't know. They talk about depleted uranium in tanks. You talk about Sable rounds that we were firing at other tanks that, that have a uranium rod inside of them. You talk about, you know, the, the, we were burning trash openly. We were burning feces, right? Standing over it with diesel fuel, stirring it all day long, all day. I was very, very young. Uh. At that time. Very young. Stirring these flaming pots. 
Um, and you're breathing all that stuff in. And again, I never was affected by it, but a lot of people I know were. And I just, I wonder if, if this is the same kind of connection. We brought it, obviously. Um, I think absolutely. I mean, you know, you see a lot, like with Agent Orange, you know, you're seeing more of these Agent Orange cases come up now. Um, we've been out of Vietnam since 75, I believe, maybe later. Um, but you're seeing a lot of cases and like their service connecting Agent Orange exposure with prostate cancer and hypothyroidism and hypertension. It's like, okay, you know, you're 75, you're a Vietnam vet and you just were diagnosed with type two diabetes. Okay. Correlation is really hard to connect, but I can see it. Um, on the other hand, you know, myself and Sherry were down in, um, Washington DC and we were presenting for members of Congress and we went to go visit a man named uh, Matt Cable, and he's an Air Force kid. And I think Nikki actually put us on to um, about him and who he is. And we went to go visit him at Walter Reed Medical Center, and um, he's 28 years old, diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia the second time. Yep. He's extremely sick, and he's a two-time uh, combat veteran extremely sick. And, and AML, I mean, I can only speak from what I've read. Um, I'm sure Nikki has more of um, a sense of AML, but AML is not a genetic disease. It's not a genetic cancer. It's a mutation in the cells directly related to toxic exposures. Um, so, you know, like, how do you explain a 28-year-old who's, who's one in a million? You know, we have a lot of these guys that are coming home really sick with AML, you know. Well, his second diagnosis was while he was deployed this last time, and he got diagnosed again, and they sent him back for treatment. So. Yeah, that's, that's where we saw him. And I think I just uh, heard that he is extremely sick again. Um, he, he's recovered. <laughs> he was in the ICU. Yes, he, yes, he had. Uh, yes, he's doing yeah, well. Yeah. And, and we just worked with um, another kid to get, I say kid, uh, he's 32, he was an Air Force JTAC. Um, we found out that he had a rare form of lymphoma, mantle cell lymphoma. I've never heard of this. And I've heard of Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's, but mantle cell lymphoma is not a common disease. But this 32-year-old has this disease directly related to his toxic exposure. Six times overseas, um, he was near death. And he's just one of a hundred that we've seen. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak with um, Ron Schuer. Uh, Medal of Honor recipient from 3rd Special Forces Group who has stage 4 lung cancer. You know, how how are these top tier, tier 1 guys, you know, these Green Berets, these JTACs, how are they this sick? Um, you know, they have the highest deployment tempo. Could that have something to do with it? But you don't expect to see somebody with such a high level of physical fitness become so ill, if that makes sense. No, it makes complete sense. For a long time, there's there's been a, and this is outside the scope of your research, obviously, but there's been a um, kind of a, a thought within our community around um, 110 and some of the some of the higher level, you know, critical response forces that we've got within within 10 special forces group. There've been high cases of cancer there, and uh, the location I don't know uh, in Bad Tolts. Uh, probably not as bad as when they moved to Stuttgart, when 110, uh, first of the 10th Special Forces Group moved from Bad Tolts to Stuttgart. It was built on top of the old city landfill. 
the the land that they acquired there, the the base had been built, or right next to it, maybe it was right next to it. But very, very high instances of cancer, specifically from that group of people uh, that had been over there. And again, dying very, very young, uh, like sure, very uncommon in the rest of, I think, the population of America. Wasn't it Camp Lejeune or someplace the Marine Corps also had a very similar instance with the water? Yeah. So, I mean, there there is definitely something here that we're talking about of what's being exposed within the environment that we're taking in, like you had said, either through the skin, through the lungs, through some way in which our body was not meant to do that. I mean, it happens all the time through history. Uh, If you start looking in the early years, you know, even – I'm talking about early 1900s and stuff like that. Depending upon where you were in the country, you may be exposed to different problems. You know, of course, genetics had something to do with it as well that may be good for you or bad for you and may put you in a worse situation. But also in terms of war, you know, we definitely know from Vietnam just because there was high cases of it, of Agent Orange. Um, I still believe my father died from a case of Agent Orange. When I contacted his unit, they had told me there were so many that actually had died of uh, similar types of cancer that they said was because they flew right through the clouds, you know, and everything after it was dropped and uh, the whole bit. And so there's been something like this, like Gulf War Syndrome, and now, you know, we're talking burn pits. There's been a history of at least when people have talked about it or have come together through some means of communications to learn what is wrong with me, that's mm-hmm. when it's been discovered. Now, you think back to World War II and Korea and all that, you know, we didn't have the mass communication ways and social media and uh, stuff that we do now to hear about it. You read your local newspaper. You, you know, you didn't have television. You know, your radio didn't talk about these things. You were in your bubble now we're mm-hmm. not in that bubble as much unless we choose to be. So you're mm-hmm. going to hear about it a lot more and you may go, wait, I know somebody that this fits the same type of background or, hey, I feel these same symptoms. Mm-hmm. So what is, what is it that you're asking people when they start noticing these things? What can they do either of someone that they know, a buddy, a, a fellow, you know, uh, soldier, sailor, airman, marine or whatever, or it's themselves? So. What we did with the, the research, we looked at, not to throw you off topic, but we looked at three things, four things, demographics, pre-deployment, during deployment, post-deployment. And it's interesting to note that 100% responded that they passed their PT test, 100% pass rate. That's, I mean, that's that's pretty, that's pretty good. <laughs> um, you know, usually you don't deploy if you can't pass a PT test, but 100% PT pass rate. And then post-deployment, there was only a 58% PT pass rate. Same individuals. So, same individuals. So not 58. using a different different group. I just wanted to make that clear because sometimes in statistics, people will use um, a study and it won't be the same individuals. But you're saying you, masked, you, you followed those same individuals. It dropped yep. from 100 to 58%. Correct. 100% pass rate for 110 individuals. Same 110 individuals deployed, they come home, and we're not just talking, you know, majority was Army, uh, majority was enlisted, um, yeah, enlisted. We're Same exact population, 110 people, 58% pass rate. And we also asked um, symptoms. We couldn't ask, the IRB was very strict on, on what we'd ask in terms of medical conditions, psychological issues. So we asked pre-deployment symptoms. Did you have any symptoms pre-deployment? 
80% reported no symptoms. So only 20% reported they had some kind of illnesses or illness-related symptoms prior to deployment. So we had things like um, headaches, uh, a couple with dizziness, um, a few with acid reflux, neuropathy, and then, you know, so that's, that's pretty normal. We didn't see anything out of the, out of the ordinary with that. Um, so only 20% reported symptoms. During deployment, everything spiked. <laughs> everything. We had an increase, 34% increase in burning eyes and throat. We had 31% increase in sinus pain, 26% increase in discolored phlegm, white spots in mouth, loss of taste, loss of, loss of smell, uh, memory loss, shortness of breath with exercise increased 47%, chest pain tightness, um, acid reflux drastically jumped up 21%, flu-like symptoms, metallic taste in mouth, and allergic reactions. All these things drastically increased. Um, so during deployment, I think it was only 18% reported no symptoms. So that's that's pretty bad. <laughs> so let, let, me, let me look at it um, or ask you a different question because somebody may be listening to this and they may go, okay, that number is relatively small, but in terms of mm -hmm. statistics, you're trying to get at least a, a high percentage of confidence. You want a 95% confidence level, a 98% right. confidence level. So in your statistical analysis to help people understand the sample size that you used, how does it confident, how does it rate in terms of confidence level of how confidence you believe confident you believe that data is of measuring the full body, the full population? So our confidence interval was 95% and our standard deviation was 0 0.42. Yeah, that's great. So what you basically, <laughs> no, and I'm glad you stated that because so anybody's listening to this and go, wow, that doesn't sound like it's a lot of people. Geez, there are a lot of people that go and come. Right. Yeah, but in statistical analysis, what you just described is the correct way about going about and doing it. So you yeah, are stating, yeah, you can, you can now state that, okay, I had a small sample size, but it represents the entire population. Right. That's, that's tremendous. And so where scary. we differ, it is, it's very scary. So where we differ from a lot of people, I, Sherry, Sherry didn't know she was exposed. I didn't know I was exposed. I'm sure Nikki didn't know she was exposed. And I'm sure... I mean, maybe you guys did, but, I, you know, I didn't. And a lot of people don't because you don't expect issues like this as a young, you know, healthy 29-year-old. Uh, I don't expect to have issues like this, so I wouldn't assume I was exposed. So we didn't target those exposed to, quote-unquote, burn pits or toxic exposures. We formed it like, hey, listen, if you're an Iraq war veteran and you served from in between March 2003 to December 2011, take this survey. That's it. We just looked for overall that cohort population, Iraq war veterans, that's it. We didn't mention toxic exposures. We didn't really pinpoint it. We asked a lot of questions um, that kind of umbrellaed everything we've read in the literature and saw was missing from the burn pit registry. But we didn't directly say, hey, listen, if you were exposed to burn pits or other toxins, take the survey. Um, because one, it instills fear in people, and we're not trying to scare people. Sure. <laughs> Two, a lot of people don't believe that they've been exposed. So we took that overall Iraq war veteran cohort and pulled from them. And we had, um, we had all ages, all deployments. Um, we had anywhere from six, six, 
six plus deployments to one deployment, uh, lifelong military, 18% responded they've been in the military for 20 plus years, um, majority active duty, majority army. We had um, 5% Navy, Air Force, uh, Marine Corps. But we didn't ask, hey, if you've been exposed, do this, because we didn't want that bias statistic. Sure. Because if we said, hey, listen, if you've been exposed to burn pits, take our survey. Of course, our data would be skyrocketed in favor for, you know, our theory and our, our research question. But we Great didn't want point. that. Yeah. So, so that's what we did. Um, we saw a massive, massive increase. Um, I don't know if you guys can see it. A massive increase in um, symptoms present and shortness of breath, breath with uh, exercise and then PT pass rate. So PT pass rate decreased drastically, symptoms increased drastically, um, but very few symptoms, only, only few symptoms decreased post-deployment. And those were the ones that were caused from situational, the acute type symptoms. So like burning eyes and throat, as soon as they left the combat zone, that decreased by 29%. As soon as they left the combat zone, discolored phlegm decreased by 23%. Um, so as soon as you remove that irritant away, those symptoms went away. But the long-term ones, like um, congestion, that increased by 43%. Chronic headaches increased by 49%. Memory loss by 52%. So a lot of the things stayed on an upward trend, but a lot of the symptoms that were acute from an irritant decreased. So it kind of helps show the, the validity of, okay, you were in this situation and this is why you're having this issue, if that makes sense. So what is, what is the goal of your research now? Where, what direction are you headed in? So, so a lot of people, we're on a board with uh, Wounded Warrior Project, IAVA, um, TAPS, VFW, and they push for legislation. So... We're nurses. I take a lot of pride in being a nurse. Um, we advocate for the patient. You know, we're, we're for the patient. We want the best outcome for them. So I can't prevent your exposures. On a primary prevention level, I can't prevent your exposure from already happening. What I can do is I can screen and do my job, hold myself responsible, and make sure that you get the best care possible. So being a veteran myself, I utilize the VA for certain things, not everything, um, but also having work on the civilian side in the ER. When we have patients come in, we don't, we don't ask them, are you a veteran or have you served? We don't. Um, they come in, you know, just recently I had a, a guy, a younger guy, he came in and, and he said he had this chronic cough for, I want to say, he said like eight months. And uh, the doctor said, okay, here's some prednisone, here's a, a, here's a inhaler, you know, take this, you'll feel better. No big deal. Sent him on his way. So I was doing his discharge paperwork, and I saw he was wearing um, a T-shirt that represented some kind of military. So I said, hey, are you a veteran? You know, just to have a conversation while I was doing paperwork. And uh, he said, yeah, I served in Iraq. I was an MP in Abu Ghraib. And I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, okay, so you dealt with prisoners. And he said, yeah, you know, and, and I'm listening to him cough and cough. And he was extremely sick, and um, he coughed up some phlegm. And I was like, that's not anything like I've ever seen before. So I said to my nurse supervisor, I'm not discharging him. I think he has tuberculosis. So they said to me, you're out of your mind. <laughs> tuberculosis doesn't exist in this country. 
And I said, no, I know. <laughs> but, you know, he was in Iraq for a few years. I think he has tuberculosis. Can we at least do a PPD? And she said, okay, you know, I trust you. Let's, let's call the doc. The doctor said to me, you're just a nurse. Stay in your lane. Okay, you know, what am I going to say? Um, I wouldn't sign that. I refused to sign paperwork and come to find out he had tuberculosis. So things like that. You know, you don't get tuberculosis from being around people in this country. You can from prisoners over in Abu Ghraib. So our whole thing is we can do a better job screening on the non-military side. You know, once they pass that, okay, you're out of the military, the transi transition's over, you know, you're, you're sick. You're acutely sick. You either go to the, the ER or you go to a walk-in clinic. You know, we want to be able to screen those people properly. So what we did is we created um, an algorithm-type software program. We sat there one day on like a Friday <laughs> and we were just racking our brains and we said, how can we make this easier for nurses? Because nurses already have 99 things to do. They don't want another one. And I can, I can say that firsthand, but, and I can't expect somebody who has no military experience to ask the right questions. They're not going to know what to ask, who to ask, why to ask. So we did it all for them. Um, patient comes in, they say, Hey, listen, I'm having this issue you know, are you safe at home? Any thoughts of hurting yourself? Anybody else? The, the typical questions. Then you ask, are you a veteran? Have you served? If they say yes, um, the algorithm begins. So it's going to go by their age and their date of birth. So obviously, if I'm 29 years old, <laughs> I couldn't have served in Vietnam. So then you ask what conflict, you go by the years, and all the data will be readily available. And it will be based off their chief complaint. So if their chief complaint is shortness of breath, I'm not going to ask about their feet. If they have rashes on their feet, I'm going to ask about respiratory-related symptoms. So this is just to give the providers and the nurses an idea of how to treat this patient, how to screen this patient. So, yeah, you might want to give that chest X-ray if they're complaining of, you know, shortness of breath and discolored phlegm. You might want to give that chest X-ray. Um, and then it will provide education on the um, aspect during discharge, where to go, who to see, your local VA, all these different aspects. So we broke it down and we realized that, plus or minus, you know, five, that 77% of veterans do not utilize VA services. So 77% of Iraq, Afghanistan veterans don't utilize VA services. So that means we're missing that many veterans. And when you think about it, it doesn't seem like that much. But, you know, when you think about 3.5 million veterans as of today, that's a lot. So the way we phrased it as nurses, <laughs> because the government only cares about money, um, we met up with a few different representatives and we said, hey, listen, we have a solution to this problem. And if you guys do X, Y, Z, what we're asking you to do, it will save you billions. When I say billions, I mean billions of dollars in the long run. Currently, we pay $36 billion a year per patient for compensation and pension at the VA. So that's expensive. And that's only considering 23% are being accounted for. So... <laughs> We can't afford this long term. And when the Iraq war veteran population, global war on terror uh, veteran population spikes in 2039, the government will be, their hands will be tied when it comes to veteran health care. Um, so what we asked to do is, you know, do better as healthcare providers screen, you know, stop these issues before they become, you know, uh, lethal. Like Sergeant Major Bowman, if they would have caught his cancer 18 months before he died, he would have had a fighting chance. Um, 
so in the same thing with Matt Cable, he mentioned to myself and Sherry that, you know, they spent uh, months trying to diagnose what was wrong with him. They thought he had the flu. You know, he was on death's doorstep before they finally said, oh, God, you have leukemia. But you're only 24. How do you have leukemia? So that's where we want to step in and educate providers, educate veterans. Um, you know, awareness is key. That's my favorite saying. Awareness is key. we got to make sure we do a better job. Uh, educating our veterans, educating our healthcare providers, and just taking a proactive approach and not so much, hey, listen, I have a chronic cough, give me money. I want compensation and pension. No, you know, we're not about that. And and I mean this in the most respectful way possible. And uh, <laughs> money is going to do you no good. You Money won't matter if you're dead. And that's, it sounds brutal. But if you have stage four lung cancer, a few few hundred in compensation and pension isn't going to do you any good. We don't want to give out money. We want to give out solutions. We want to give out ways to prevent, ways to provide. That's that's pretty much um, what we're trying to do. Yeah, so. uh, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> uh, how can people find out more about Hunter 7? Of course, you know, you can go to the website, hunter7.com. But are you guys also out on Facebook or social media and those types of things where people can find you? So, um, like I Nick is really involved with our social media and, uh, we have, a, we have a guy who does a lot of our social media and, um, on Instagram, especially, um, we have the website, which is getting redone, uh, not by me. I'm not a, I'm not an online engineer type person, but it's all in the making. Um, <laughs> we, and like, you know, we're all volunteers, so we created a 501c3 nonprofit just to be able to raise money to help those who need um, assistance when it comes to cancer diagnosis and stuff like that. But we all work full-time jobs. We go to school. Um, so we try to do what we can, but it's uh, it's a work in progress. What's the action that you uh, want to leave the audience with? I mean, you know, if they, they, again, are hearing this and this is something that either themselves or somebody they know are affected by, um, should they be reaching out to you? Is there something that they should be completing like, you know, Mike did with the burn pit registry? Is there some action that they should take? So what we ask veterans to do is to think about it, you know, like think about your exposures. Think about, hey, was I exposed to this? You know, it's better to address it now than to address it later. So, you know, we try to help as many people as we can. My inbox is flooded with questions. Um, who to go, who to see, where to go, what to do. And uh, it's it's overwhelming. Um, but it's great that people are, are taking advantage of and taking responsibility for their own health. But they definitely need to step up and say, hey, listen, go to your doctor and be like, this is what I was exposed to. And the doctor won't know. He will not know what you're talking about. They, they don't. And you can't blame them for that because, you know, they're civilians. They don't know. But you got to go there and you got to say, hey, listen, I'm having a chronic cough. Give me a pulmonary function test. You know, our research showed that 41% of our veterans, the same ones that, that were through and through through the entire survey, 41% had a PFT. That's insane. 35% had a sleep apnea study. Only 6% of American population have sleep apnea. As far as um, the burn pit registry, I would definitely advocate and, and encourage members yes fill it out it's all the it's all they have right now and as there are steps taken to improve it we know it sucks we know it's not good 
We know that. It's been identified. There's been studies on that in particular. Mm -hmm. But it's all that the government has to have a record that you can put yourself on. Mm -hmm. I know for myself, I was given a piece of paper to put in my record that said I was exposed. Where that went, who knows? It's not mm -hmm. on my records when I am going through this process and I got my medical records. It's no longer there. So the only way you can actually go somewhere and have it documented that you were exposed and not, not look, just answer the questions. Some of them are flawed. We know this. Just go in there and put your name on the list. Yeah. And the numbers are really grossly low. Um, Chelsea and I attended a conference together and we walked around. I didn't, she was there as a student. I was there as a professor. So she was looking at some other topics. I was just walking around talking to people. And time and time again, just through general conversation, I would find people who did not know they were exposed. We were having lunch and a young man sat with us and he kept coughing. And Chelsea said to him, hey, you should get that cough check. And he's like, oh, I've had this for, how long did he say, Chelsea? He, he said over like three years. Yeah, crazy, absurd. Like since he deployed, he had had this cough. So yes, go to your provider and get checked out. And also, yes, do the, do the registry, add to the numbers because there's power in numbers and there aren't mm -hmm. enough people that fill that out. They get frustrated because it's flawed. It's hard to finish. It shuts down. But it's all we have right now. It's I have uh, one of our our one of the guys who helps us out. I have his uh, burn pit registry um, drawdown. I have I have Paul's and and he um, he wrote down on the back that as of February nineteenth, twenty nineteen, only one hundred and sixty eight thousand veterans have signed up for the burn pit registry, and out of three point five million, that's that's really low. Um, it's a good it's a good thing to have, but just like Sherry said, um, keep your medical records. The military has lost so many medical records, not on purpose, but you know you got to make sure that you advocate for yourself. So when they give you that SF six hundred that they give out to everybody who's deployed to a combat zone for environmental exposures, make sure you make a copy of it and put it in your record. Um, records are key. Anytime you go to sick call, if you need an inhaler, albuterol get something from your medic or your nurse or whoever you have um, and keep those records. That's one of the best pieces of advice I can give, but yeah, the power in numbers. Look forward to you guys having like a Q and a uh, frequently asked questions type of thing on your website, you know, for that'll help hopefully eliminate a lot of those emails that go in the info at uh, box that you're having to deal with now, Chelsea. Uh, but I think people are going to probably listen to this and probably flood it that much more because they're going to be wondering, okay, I hear, I hear certain things and I'm wondering now I was here. This is what I feel. This is what, you know, and uh, I can certainly see it happening. Just being aware of, of your healthcare. And like you said, you know, people don't think about correlating a cough for three years with, oh, maybe that's due to my deployment. So just bringing more awareness to this situation and people being more, um, being an advocate for themselves and their healthcare and going out into the civilian sector, if that's where they're getting seen and bringing up those issues to those doctors. So I think that's, that's going to help out, um, until, but I like your screening survey. I think that's going to work out really well in a triage situation. And that's the thing right now. So we're pushing, we're not political people at all we don't fit into that community we're uh, we're veterans so we swear a lot um but 
you know, there's a piece of legislation right now with um, Tulsi Gabbard, H.R. 663, and it's the Burn Pits Accountability Act. And, um, you know, little things like that will help out in the long run. Um, we have a lot of, I think this is the biggest class of freshman candidates that are military veterans. So hopefully moving forward, they'll be able to enact a piece of legislation to require um, the questions to be asked, because I know we're mandated to ask, are you safe at home? Do you have any thoughts of hurting yourself or anybody else? But if we can mandate that one question, are you a veteran? Have you served? You know, it takes away so much of the financial burden down the line. Um, in education, education is key. So, I mean, that, that will be huge. Um, that will be huge. But we are very careful on the kind of information that we take because there's a lot of organizations out there that, that do not have the credentials per se to, to gather medical information. Medical information is very sensitive, Yeah, you know, and it's like your social, you just don't want to throw it out there to anybody and whoever, because, you know, if I allowed that to happen, I could lose my, my license (laughs) to practice. So, um, be very careful on who you, on who you reach out to and who you talk to. Um, you know, you got to advocate for yourself. So, Well, I look forward to what you guys continue to do in bringing this type of awareness because I can see all kinds of amazing things and it sounds like you're already working on it, such as either apps or some types of website or something like that that can get the word out to the providers and the individuals that are going to be meeting face-to-face with these uh former military personnel to ask these simple questions. And, you know, uh, is, if anything else, maybe the, some of the people that are listening to this episode uh, will be able to help you extend that in some capacity in terms of just getting the word out, spreading awareness. And I think that's what you guys are really trying to do. I want to thank both you, Sherry and Chelsea for joining us on the podcast and bringing this awareness to all of our listeners uh, because a good percentage of them are veterans and they're probably either, like I said, experiencing some of these effects effects or have experienced it or they know somebody who has and so Mm -hmm. hopefully this will give them a little bit more education and um you know understanding about what's happening to them yeah thank you so much for having us and thank you nikki for helping us promote (laughs) absolutely (laughs) thanks for having us